0: So we are continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is the fifth week that we've been there. And in fact, this week we really end up at the very center of the book uh, when we end at the end of chapter six. Uh, Ecclesiastes is not really a joyful book full of divine promises. Uh, So if you came here this morning and that's what you were expecting to hear, you might be disappointed or dissatisfied, but then the book is about dissatisfaction. So uh, maybe that's appropriate. Whatever the author, uh, whom we call Colette, meant to communicate, what he does is actually provide an apologetic for why the secular life, the life that's lived as if God is irrelevant, cannot ultimately lead to satisfaction. He uses universal wisdom themes to expose the pitfalls of life under the sun. God lives in heaven But we live under the sun. And really, the secular life that he's talking about is a life that truncates all of reality. Because it does away with the possibility that God may be able to come in from the outside. Instead, it limits it to what we can taste and see and feel and hear, all of those particular things. Things that atheists intentionally do, they truncate reality. Uh, but also agnostics or secular people, maybe even people who go to churches, but just think of life as if this is it, where we are on earth. God is irrelevant. He's also actually engaging in a kind of pre-evangelism. Usually when we think of apologetics, we think of someone that's arguing rationally for the reality of God or, or Jesus Christ, and maybe even saying that it's likely that that is true. But he's really doing the step before that. And that is that he's showing us how life without God is not really worth living. That we really need to look beyond that which is under the sun if we're going to find fulfillment and satisfaction in the world. And this process is not necessarily just a very clear clearly marked out argument from chapter 1 to chapter 10, or chapter 12, he's actually acting like this is a diary that he's writing, or he's writing notes down on a pad of paper. And as he begins to reflect on those things, he writes them down. So sometimes he actually comes back to themes that he's talked about before, he just looks at them in a different perspective. And that will be true today as we look at wealth. And every once in a while, he looks beyond the sun to where God sits on his sovereign throne. And From under the sun, we don't necessarily know what God is up to. There's a certain mystery to life. And even we Christians who know that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross and was raised again, and that he's going to come back again and set all things right, even we who know all of that, still wonder about life. There's, there's things that we don't understand about. it. There will be things that we can't understand about what it means. And if we think we do, then we should be careful with that and instead bring those things to God. So as Tommy's already mentioned, uh, this morning we're going to look at two topics that Colette has recorded on his notepad. Uh, one is worship and the second one is wealth. So let's just pause for a quick moment of prayer together. Lord, we pray that you would take these words and apply them to our hearts. We need your spirit. So please work in us. Help us to understand how to love you and acknowledge you in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is what Coalette writes in Ecclesiastes 5 1 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fool's. I don't know whether you came maybe just out of routine. Maybe your mind is occupied with something else. Maybe you're obsessed with something else. Or maybe you're just actually not all that interested in what's going on here this morning. That's the reason we have a worship leader, by the way. A worship leader is just there to kind of slap us in the face and wake us up and say, yeah, this is what we're really doing here. It's more than what goes on under the sun. Maybe you're just a religious person. And what we usually mean by that is you're a person who goes to church. Maybe you read your Bible. Maybe you pray prayers. uh, But we have to always think to ourselves, why are we here this morning? What is it that we're really after? Do we just feel better if we've gone to church in the morning? Is that why we're here? Or is there something about it that is far beyond all of that? There is a practice of religion that can be carried out under the sun, as Kohelet talks about. It's thoughtless. It's routine. And Kohelet warns us not to be thoughtless when we pray, when we offer our service or sacrifices, or when we make our promises. We need to be thoughtful about all of those. So he writes in chapter 2, or verse 2 in chapter 5, "...be not rash with your word." Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. It's interesting that when Jesus teaches us to pray, the first words that he teaches us to pray is, Our Father, who art in heaven. The first thing we need to remember is that God is in heaven and we are not. Even before we ask for anything else. It's it's not that God doesn't want us to come before him with our desires and our wants and our needs, but first he wants us to recognize who he is. Silence is the first step to understanding God, not because silence itself does anything, but because of the way it prepares us to hear from the King of Heaven. God is almighty and holy, and it would do us well to be reticent to speak without thinking. Imagine if you were to go into your boss's office and you were to start complaining about all the things that are going wrong there, all the different people that you have to work with, all the things that you wish your job weren't. Probably your time of employment may be tenuous at that point. And so it is sometimes that we come before God that way. I know that I frequently come to God in the morning and I feel rushed because of the schedule of the day and I begin immediately spouting all the things that I would like God to do for me. That day, I want to go to immediate intercession and never recognize who he is that 's religion under the sun. The Jewish believer in the Old Testament could show up at the temple with the blemishless sheep or goat or whatever he was offering in his sacrifice and offer it without a thought, just people part of the routine in Isaiah one chapter verse twelve. God is speaking and he says, what is this trampling of my courts? God is offended when we simply do the religious things that we do in our lives without thinking. It's the sacrifice of fools. And what about my speech? How often do I casually promise to pray for someone or to do something for someone or to do something as a task? In biblical language, do I make a rash vow? And so Proverbs 20, 25 says, It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. What did I actually say I would do when I promised somebody something? And what did I really do? When Jesus is talking about oaths in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, he warns us, to to not try to convince somebody that we're actually going to do something, but rather simply to follow through with it. That's real faith. That's a real vow that is followed. And so he says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And Peter also, in his epistle, reminds us that the things that we say and the things that we do need to be done from the heart. No amount of ev- emphasis on grace can justify taking liberties with God, for the very concept of grace demands gratitude, and grat- gratitude cannot be casual. In fact, if you think somebody is thanking you for something just because they feel like they have to, you're usually offended by that. This section ends with the exhortation to f- fear God, because everything that's gone before, that's where it needs to begin, to honor Him. This is where all our acts of worship and service originate from, and they're where all of our acts of service and worship should be going toward the exaltation of God, towards the worship of God. Remember who God is. Remember who you are. He's the generous and holy master. You are the sinful and weak sinner. And he's worthy of our thoughtful worship. We need his saving desperately. So he says, live out your faith knowing that God is in heaven and that you don't simply live under the sun. You live in his presence. So now the rest of the chapter actually talks about the whole theme of wealth. And as I mentioned earlier, he's talking about this from a number of different perspectives. And again, we look at this from under the sun to begin with, and it provides some disappointing answers. So, Uh, Chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes, verse 10 to 17. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that that he may carry away with his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. It's a delightful end, isn't it, to think of it that way? So what are these four things that he points out here that he mentions about the disappointments of wealth? Well, the first is that wealth never satisfies. In verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. Many of you may remember the story of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, and Edmund, who is one of the Pevensey children, who finds his way going through uh, the wardrobe and then ending up in Narnia, and he meets the white witch there in the middle of the wintertime, and she senses right away his weakness, that he loves Turkish delight. In fact, Edmund would do almost anything for Turkish delight, and so she promises him endless Turkish delight, and his whole perspective on the things around him completely change. They're governed by this one thing that he wants, even to the point where he betrays his brother and sisters. Wealth can be like that with us, too. It can change all of our perspectives and the things that, in the way that we look at life, the way that we worship God, the way we interact with other people. Sometimes we can get to the point where we think if we made money that particular day or we were promoted to a certain job or we won the lottery, then it was a fantastic day. But if we had to pay an unexpected car bill or we had to pay our taxes, then it really wasn't a very good day. John D. Rockefeller, who was the founder of Standard Oil Company in 1870, which is kind of the forerunner of all kinds of gas companies today, said, how much money does it take to to make a man happy? And his answer is, just one more dollar. And so every dollar leads to another dollar. It never leads to satisfaction. Wealth is like an appetite. We eat, and then we will have to eat again. And sometimes we like something that continues to cause us to eat, and then we don't feel very good. It makes us seek more. Now, I know that most of us don't consider ourselves rich. And I won't ask anyone to raise hands this morning who thinks they are rich. But most of us don't, yet this is the result of wanting riches. So whether you're rich or poor, the issue is not really what he's talking about. What he's really talking about is the seeking of wealth, not whether we have wealth or not. To be focused on wealth is to never be satisfied because it controls our urges and desires. It doesn't satisfy them. So the second disappointment with wealth is that it causes anxiety. Maybe you've worked hard for what you have, or at least most of us think that we have. But once we have it, it can take a lot of wealth to keep what we have. We have extra expenses. We buy a security system with a doorbell camera or a cybersecurity system so no one can steal things through the Internet. Things that we used to do ourselves, maybe very poorly, uh, we now pay someone else to do. Maybe you end up hiring a butler or a cook or a chauffeur or you could start traveling with an entourage. That's what rich people do. Okay, most of us would not do any of those things and most of us can't find that, uh, even being within our means of wealth. But to protect our wealth or to seek it, us us to do those kinds of things. And all of that comes with insecurity. Proverbs 19.4 says this, Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. There are a lot of companies that would like to convince us that we should buy what they have to offer. And if we're not wise, we will begin to buy those things. And with that comes the anxiety that maybe we've overextended ourselves. Maybe we really can't afford vacation that we had or the house that we've bought or a number of other things and at the end of the month we find ourselves being anxious will our money go that far sometimes we lose sleep over that possibly losing what we think we might have had i'm not against uh, i'm not saying that it's not good to have a financial planner i have a financial planner they help us steward our money well Again, I'm not saying that there's nothing good about a salesperson. We have salespeople that that sell us things that we actually need to do the things that God calls us to do. Those are all good things. But it is the amassing of wealth for wealth's sake that he's warning against. And that's partly bad because of the third disappointment in wealth, and that is that it's tenuous. Wealth is so easy to lose either by our own foolishness or because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, we all might agree that a gambler is, is making a poor investment. Chances of them winning are probably not real high most of the time. Or somebody who makes a risky venture in the stock market. That may be what this person is talking about, what Coalette is talking about here. And frequently, people do lose their money. According to a USA article, 70% of lottery winners find themselves broke after they won the lottery, often within a few years. We can lose wealth because of a health crisis. Or a crisis involving our family or our children. There are natural disasters that can occur. In some countries, war is far more commonplace than here, and people lose everything and can't regain it back. There's a reason that many insurance policies don't cover acts of war or terrorism, because those are things that we can't recover from. Coalette tells the story of a man who has all this wealth and then loses it. All those years of honorably gaining the wealth ends up all for naught, He worked his fingers to the bone, and he has a son, and now he has nothing to give his son. The man ends up living his life in poverty, and his children will never benefit from it. He's frustrated, angry, bitter at having lost it all. It would be better if he had never even lived. Tremper Longman says, Holding on to wealth is problematical during life, and it's impossible at death. Jesus tells us in Matthew that we really should store our treasures in a place where nothing can get to it. And so he says in Matthew six nineteen to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up treasures for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also Is your treasure under the sun or is your treasure in heaven is what he's saying. And finally, wealth has no answer for death. The problem of death, we all have to face it. We all die leaving what we have behind. We don't know what's going to happen to it, but we must all give it up. Kohelet almost quotes Job. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. And then Colette reflects a little bit more on wealth in chapter 6, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So in the Old Testament, you hear even many times in the words of Scripture That a blessed life is one where somebody lives many, many years and has all that they need and then they have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And those are all good things. But sometimes we see our lives that way as well, here, today. And these are things to feel blessed about. That God has provided for our needs, that we have long life, that we have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren even. But... What about the person who simply lives a short life? Perhaps they answer the call of God to go overseas and live in another country, in another land. And then they die early, but they leave behind them a church and many believers who continue to spread the gospel. Is that person's life less well-blessed simply because they died short? Did they miss God's blessing for them? The person who has wealth and everything that we could possibly want or could be purchased could still be unhappy. Ultimately, they have to leave their wealth behind. Colette says to us, rich or poor, long-lived or short-lived, wealth is vain. And Paul kind of reminds us of our attitude toward wealth and how ruinous it can be for us in 1 Timothy 6.9. Those who get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And yet, somewhere in the back of my mind, I think to myself, I would rather be unhappy and rich than unhappy and poor. And if you think that way, you've got exactly what Coalette is talking about here. You're as cynical as he is. Are these really the only two choices, to be unhappy in rich and to be unhappy in poor? Well, yes, if you live under the sun, absolutely, there is no other way to live. But if you live to the Lord, then the opportunities are much different. Derek Kidner writes, If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. And really all idols that we have in our lives fall short for the very same reason. Loneliness, the answer to loneliness is not marriage. We can be lonely in our marriages as well. The answer for meaningless and boredom is not entertainment and pleasure. The meaning for Healing of pain is not necessarily addiction to drugs or alcohol or something else that will numb our lives. And what Colette does here is eventually begin to point us toward the gospel, towards God who is in heaven. It isn't wealth that brings us happiness. It is the ability to see wealth, little or great, as the gift of God, to look beyond the sun. And so he writes these words in Ephesians 5, or Ecclesiastes five eighteen to 20. with joy in his heart. Michael Eden, a, commentary, write, a commentator, says this A man must be in control of his attitude to wealth rather than his attitude to wealth in control of him. From a biblical perspective, when we have any kind of wealth, it's a gift. Graciously given, never entitled, it's what God has allotted to us. When we have a job, it is a gift. Graciously given and never entitled, God has provided it for us and for our need. If someone graciously gives us what we need, even if we don't have a job, it's a gift, graciously given to us and never entitled. It's a gift from God. It's been allotted to us. And so Paul, as he reflects on his own Times of Wealth and His Own Times of Plenty, writes this in Philippians 4. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And that's because the gospel promises us far more. What the gospel tells us is that we have a, limitly, a limitless rich father who is our father who saw us and adopted us and brought us into his family and shares all of his riches with us. We were spiritually and poor and miserable orphans and he has made us sons and daughters so that we might share in his limitless inheritance and he, that he's provided through his son Jesus Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ, sons and daughters of God. Where could we be richer than that? There are no end to these riches that we inherit, spiritual or material. Death cannot touch them. They're not tenuous. Nor is there any end to the fellowship that we have with our Father or our brothers or sisters in the Lord. Nothing can stop us from enjoying these riches in God's presence with him. Romans eight sixteen to 17 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And sometimes we don't like that last phrase, but he reminds us that we don't live under the sun, that any poverty, any suffering, any pain that we experience now is temporary and it will fail to defeat us. And so he immediately adds in the next verse these words, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So God's attitude toward his riches is that he gives them away. Joyfully, he gives his own riches away. He adopts us He adopts the poor, he brings them into his house so that they live with him and he provides for every need that they have. And he trains us more and more to be like he is, to be content in him. Even more, he gives sacrificially, giving his own son Jesus to die on our behalf that we might share in those riches. And so that we realize that even at the end of time, even as we leave this world, we actually don't leave behind anything at all. We look forward to what we will receive. And Paul tells us what that is in 1 Corinthians three twenty-one to 23. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the riches that we have in Christ. Remind us again and again that that is where our wealth is, that that's where our treasure is. Lord, give us satisfaction in you, contentment in you. Lord, we pray that as we remember what you have done for us, that we are truly blessed in Jesus that we have all that we need, and that our worship is from our heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.